Well, good morning, Sedaris. Welcome to church. I'm so glad to be with you this morning. Um, I hope that you are, are safe and healthy and well. I hope and pray that for you. Thanks so much for tuning in to do church this morning with us in the band. If you have your Bible, open it up. Turn open to 1 Peter. 1 Peter, and when you get there, turn to the big five. That's chapter five. We're going to be actually closing up our letter to 1 Peter today. And if you haven't been tracking with us, we've actually been working through 1 Peter since the beginning of the year, which has actually proven to be really God's, God's gracious providence for us because the book of 1 Peter, this letter that Peter wrote almost 2,000 years ago now, um, has to all to do with suffering, how we suffer in the world, the suffering that we're going to hardship, troubles, trials. It's all about how to faithfully handle suffering. And so we've actually, we're leaning into this in, in January and February before everything closed down in March, May, and for the foreseeable future at this point. And, and I know that for, for many of us, uh, this has really been, uh, the, Peter's words here have really helped us not just survive suffering, but even flourish in the midst of it, you know, uh, Peter, of course, didn't have the coronavirus in mind when he was writing. But you know what? Um, outright persecution towards Christians wasn't taking place yet at the time when he wrote this letter, which makes us think that he is speaking more broadly about how does the Christian orient themselves to suffering generally. And so it actually is applicable to, to suffering and hardship and troubles that we encounter almost everywhere and anywhere. And so uh, it's really been God's providential hand that he has been having us walk through this letter on suffering and preparation for suffering and in the midst of suffering, okay? And like I said, today we're going to be unpacking the last bit of Peter's letter. And what's fascinating is that Peter actually isn't content just to close with a typical conclusion, just say his farewells and then sign his name and get out of there. What he actually does in these closing verses is he introduces a new character for us. He introduces a new character that he hasn't spoke about in the previous uh, five and a half chapters. He's going to introduce it now at the very end because this character actually shows us what is at stake in the midst of suffering. What's at stake in the midst of suffering? And it becomes very clear through this new character that Peter is presenting to us. It becomes very clear why suffering faithfully is so, 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 so important. That's what Peter's going to do for us today. Okay, so let's just read our passage. It's going to be chapter 5, big 5, uh, that is, and verse 5, that's the little 5. We're going to read 5 through 11 together. All right. So 5.5 five starts like this. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Here's the new character. Your adversary, the devil, prowls, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore you, 
confirm you, strengthen you, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. God is in control is what that last verse means. Now, now, now this character is Satan. And as if going through suffering wasn't hard enough, as if going through uh, various trials and difficulties and hardships and troubles wasn't enough, Peter says, oh yeah, by the way, there's Satan. He exists as a, a, a prowling lion waiting for someone in a time of suffering to fall away from the herd that he might pounce and devour them. That's what Peter says is the reality happening around suffering. We have Satan as a prowling, roaring lion waiting to devour people. This is why suffering faithfully is so, so, so important. Now, this notion of Satan isn't a popular one, um, but it's one that is actually present in the scriptures from the, the very beginning to the end. The first book of the Bible that was probably penned in about 1500 BC is the book uh, of Job. It's titled Job. And in Job, we have Satan embodying this picture. Uh, he actually uh, asks God if, if he can allow uh, uh, Satan to make Job suffer so that Satan can pounce on him like a roaring lion and make him curse God. So, so Satan's working around the suffering of Job and his goal is to make Job curse God, to devour him. And the Bible, so that's the, that's the first book, and, and Peter's probably written towards the end. The book of Revelation uh, is actually probably the, the last book that is penned in the Bible, and it's also the last book in the Bible. It talks about Satan as a roaring lion. No, sorry, as a, a, a red dragon with seven heads. Other intense imagery, Jesus calls Satan a strong man. The God of this world the prince of the powers of the air. You see, the Bible is united in this witness of who Satan is and this confession of who Satan is as a supernatural being, a powerful supernatural being, a powerful personal supernatural being capable of tremendous evil. That is what the scriptures tell us about who Satan is. But this as we go out into culture, the, the, our culture has a very different idea of who Satan is and, and very different images to, de to depict him. And in fact, the images that our culture picks to depict Satan are meant to belittle him. You know, you have fat baby with horns and a pitchfork with a, a, a mischievous little grin. Our, our culture really paints pictures of Satan to belittle the idea of Satan um, that he even exists, that he's a silly notion to believe in. Um, how, how deceived our culture is. Because do you know who, this, who spoke the most about Satan? Out of all the, all the people who's, whom scripture writes about, do you know who spoke the most about Satan? That's Jesus Christ. Jesus spoke about Satan a lot, about the devil, about hell, about demons. Jesus was speaking about these supernatural, personal, evil forces all the time. And so really, um, we really uh, see Jesus's word aligning with all of scripture. And, and it's, it's a little bit silly for us to just accept Jesus's word on the good supernatural forces that we like, uh, God, 
angels, perhaps, heaven, uh, but then to reject these words that he has to say about hell, the devil, demons. I think that's logically inconsistent to to agree with Jesus's um, uh, um, statements on these personal, powerful, good forces, but to disagree with him on these on these personal power powerful evil forces i think that's a little bit logically inconsistent i think it shows our own biases that these forces make us really uncomfortable and we have to take jesus for everything that he said and everything that he taught now i don't mean to scare you i don't mean to frighten you but i I do hope along with peter here to convince you to take this being seriously to take this being seriously, especially in the midst of suffering, because that's when we need to take him the most seriously. The good news is that God in his love for us has actually let us know that this being does exist. He didn't have to do that, I suppose. But God in his love for us has given us a heads up. Hey, there's this being that exists. He tells us that in scripture. But he actually goes beyond that. He actually says, oh, and this is his ultimate goal. His ultimate goal is actually to take you away from considering and seeking me. That's his ultimate goal. And then he goes one step further and says, and this is how he works. This is how he works. Those three things. And Peter is talking about all three of those things here in our passage today. And it's so, so crucial to understand these things in light of our present circumstances of suffering, in light of the future suffering that no doubt awaits us in our lives when loved ones pass or when we go through extended periods of of job loss and joblessness, of of sickness and and cancer. All of these things that are suffering awaits us. If anything is certain in life is that suffering awaits us without a doubt. And so right now, as, as we dive into this letter, Peter's going to empower us to, to suffer faithfully. And it's so, so, so important because Satan lurks as a lion, is what he says. Now, for some of you, then, uh, in your Bibles, I may have picked up in the middle of a paragraph. It picks up in the middle of a paragraph in my Bible in verse 5. Um, uh, per, but for some of you, the paragraph starts with verse 5, and that's really because this verse 5 functions as what we call a hinge verse. It, it significantly contributes and concludes uh, Peter's previous thought of how the church uh, submits itself to one another, how those in the church submit themselves to one another. Um, and then it also develops on and launches into uh, how Satan works uh, in the world. And so it functions as this hinge verse, which they're all over the place in the New Testament. But it does mean that we have to back up a little bit and consider this in context, okay? So I'm going to just take a minute to do that, okay? Um, Dave unpacked the first five verses of chapter five last week, and he unpacked the elders of, how the elders of the church are to lead the people of God as part of their humble service to God with spirits of humility themselves. This is why verse five starts with, likewise, you who are younger. Okay, likewise, you who are younger. Uh, You need to be subject to your elders in the same way they are subject to Christ and subject to you. And then Peter goes on to say, now all of you clothe yourselves with 
humility. Okay, Peter is, is highlighting how this new radical community of the first century, this new church, is driven by the picture of Christ's humility and his submission to God, uh, which informs how the, the, the elders conceive of their work in the world as the, and, and the people of God inf- conceive of their work in the world as they unite themselves to Christ. His humility actually works in and through them because that's how God works. It, it, it's a really beautiful picture actually that results that Dave talked about last week a bit. Now we, we only have so much time to preach and pe- pre- preach and teach each Sunday and so one of the things we may may or may, may or may not have been totally clear about is is what does that actually look like in practice um, and we actually talk a lot about that in our family member class um, so if you had questions about wait well, how does this actually look like in practice uh, and you are a family member it's probably time to revisit the family member covenant about the, the promises uh, the, the humble promises that we all take on for one another both both elders and deacons to, to family members family members to elders and deacons, and then all of us are family members, fam- the, the, the humble promises that, that all of us family members take on for one another. Um, if you aren't a family member, we would really invite you to, to check out our ne- upcoming, uh, our next family member class, and, or you can even just reach out to Dave and I, and, and, and we can provide more specifics for you, okay? Um, but what Peter's telling us uh, through this hinge verse, it, all of us, he's telling us to clothe ourselves with humility towards one another. Well, why? Well, Peter says it's because God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So Peter says that if we're proud, God actually opposes us. Now, now this is different than the opposition of the devil. The, the, Satan opposes us by really because of our nature, who we are. Are. You and I were created by the love and grace and power of God um, to be image bearers. We are made in his image. And Satan, as one who is set up against God, uh, naturally is opposed to everything that bears his image. So he is opposed to you and he's opposed to I. And so that's different than the opposition that, that Peter is talking about here of God to his people. Uh, God opposes pride in his people because, because he hopes to work in and through them. And so if they're, and we know through Christ that God actually works through humility. That's the, the, one of the biggest pictures through Christ's life. And so if there, is pri- if there is pride in us, it means that God can't work in and through us to the world. And so he hopes to discipline us. He hopes to discipline us for pride in this case. And, and this means that it's actually motivated not by hatred for us, like Satan's opposition is, but by love for us. God loves us deeply and he, he loves this world deeply. And so he, he longs to work his humility through us and, and, and in us and towards other people. And so in his love, he's going to discipline us to try to grow us past pride and towards humility. That's what he's going to do. Hebrews 12 says, a father disciplines those whom he loves. So God's opposition here is an act of love towards us and, and, But I want to spend some time here unpacking this God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Um, Because if we understand pride, we can really understand how Satan operates. That's why Peter has put it in a hinge verse here for us. Um, And and this is, it's probably really helpful to look at that by looking at what Peter isn't saying with this comment. 
He isn't saying that we should clothe ourselves with humility because God clothed himself with humility for us. And now we need to clothe ourselves, therefore, with humility for one another. We owe it to God to be humble to other people because he was humble to us. That's actually not what Peter is saying. Now, this is a very popular version of the gospel message generally in Christian circles. Um, It goes like this. God did this, fill in the blank, for me. Now I have to do this, fill in the blank, for others. But this is actually a subtle defection of the gospel. It isn't the gospel of grace. It's not how grace works, actually. It's the debtor's gospel. Now, how do you know you're falling into this, this debtor's gospel? If you feel like you owe God something, if you feel like you owe God something, you might be falling victim to the debtor's gospel. Because right when we think or we feel like we owe God something, right then, grace ceases to be grace. It's no longer a free gift, is it? It's got some strings attached to it. The the gospel says that God worked humbly in the past to give you grace, to extend you grace. Yes, but it also says that God continues to work in the present and will continue to work in the future to, to extend grace to you, in you, and through you into the world by way of the Holy Spirit. That's what the gospel says, which means this. If you are proud, It's indicative that you aren't letting him work through you, for he operates by humility. And everything in us that sets itself against or above God, he opposes. He disciplines for the glory of his name and for our good, actually. Um, You see, our our Christian labor, you could say, you could call it Christian labor, um, it isn't informed by us being in debt to his past grace but by allowing his current grace and his future grace to work through us. You see, the the gospel astute Christian says, I don't owe God anything. Some of us might gasp at that comment if you adhere to the debtor's gospel. No, but the gospel astute Christian says, I don't owe God anything, but in everything I give him control for I long for his grace to work in and through me. Do you see the difference there? You, you, you can even say it like this. While we are incredibly grateful and thankful for past grace, we are not motivated by past grace. Uh, that's the debtor's gospel. We are motivated by the future grace that God desires to accomplish through us. That's what we're motivated by. Uh, and, and you know what? You will actually be hard-pressed to find in Scripture the motivations for our righteousness, that is, our Christian labors, the, 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 things, the good things we do. You're going to be hard-pressed to find uh, the motivations for the good things that God has called us to do in the world tied to past grace as a motivation. It's just not there. And so it's really our duty to tell you as, as elders that, that that's not in scripture and uh, to tell you just as a person that, you know, I adhered to the debtor's gospel for a long time. And I, and I must confess to you that that's not how the gospel works. That's not how grace works. The New Testament scriptures say 
grace works, our motivations for what we do works by us longing for it to see how God's present and future grace can work in and through us. One, one, one verse that brings it up is 2 Corinthians 9, 8, where Paul says this, and God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having sufficiency in all things at all time, you may abound in every good work. You see, the first half of that verse doesn't say, God extended grace to you, now you may abound in every good work. No, it says God is able to make all grace abound to you now and in the future so that you may abound in every good work. The, the motivation for our Christian labor is on God's current and future grace, not on past grace. Although we are so incredibly grateful for it. So God is revealing, he's working, he's extending grace through you, empowering you to do every good work. Now, th this is not just semantics here, okay? It's the difference between what we feel like we should do for God, okay, and what we could do with God. That's the difference between the debtor's gospel and the real gospel. The debtor's gospel, what we should do for God, the, the real gospel, what we could do with God. You see that? That's a huge difference in, in the experience of our lives, isn't it? Would you rather your faith in life be about obligation to God or imagination with God? You see, thank God that scripture tells us it's the second of those two things. Now, now for, uh, for a large part, people reject Christianity because they have been presented the debtor's gospel. They think that everything that we do, whether by, by uh, they've misunderstood or they've actually been presented, they've come to know some Christians that operate by the debtor's gospel. Uh, they, they've come to see, oh, that's the gospel? I don't like that. But if they came into the contact with this gospel of, of Christian labor that's inspired by imaginative teamwork with God, that's attractive. Now, now, this is a general principle of the Christian life, and it applies to all things. It's a general gospel pr principle, and, and it applies to all things that we strive for, that we're called to strive for as Christians. Compassion, kindness, patience, joy, humility. And, and Peter says, clothe yourselves with humility. Put it on like a garment. He, he doesn't say, wait around for it to grow. He says, hey, put it on. He says, put it on like your clothing, which is a, a really cool metaphor that tells us a few things. First, it tells us that it is one of the first things we will notice about one another. One of the first things people will notice about us, humility. Okay. Uh, um, second, it, it also means that it's going to look a little bit different for different people based on their dispositions, based on their gifts, based on their callings. Humility is, is it'll look very different for different people. And, and so we actually will, well, when you're in the Christian community, you'll have a lot of people that, that look very different, but you'll be able to see the humility that each has tied onto themselves or that, that each has clothed themselves with. Okay, and so here are, here are two questions to guide uh, what this could look like for you with God, okay? Here are two questions. Um, the first is, how could I consider others better than myself? Paul urges the Christians in, in, in Philippi to do this, and in Philippians chapter 2, uh, he says, consider others better than yourselves. Why? Because that's what God did in 
Christ, he says. Now he says, he's not saying God did that in Christ, so you better do that. He's saying God did that in Christ. And so as you unite yourself to him, Christ is going to do that in and through you. That's a future grace that Christ wants to work in and through you is humility towards one another. Jesus considered us better than him. Jesus um, took on the base, disgusting task of washing his disciples' disgusting feet. And God wants to continue doing just that through us to one another. That's what God wants to do. Okay. The second question is, how could I let, how could I let, and how could I even invite others to serve me? How could I let, how could I invite others to serve me? If there's going to be people giving grace, it means that there's going to need to be people who are receiving grace in this world. Do you see that? And, and the interesting thing is we actually need the humility to do both, to both give grace and receive grace. You see, a, a humble person not only extends grace to people, but actually wears a sign around their neck that says, give me grace. I need grace. Now, some of you are saying, hey, this guy promised me that he would talk about the devil. He talked about the devil. When is he going to get to that, okay? Now, d- don't worry. We're, we're almost there. We've almost laid the foundation that we need. Um, but, but before we get there, we need to talk about an expression of pride that doesn't get much airtime, but is in every one of our lives, okay? It, it's prevalent, but you almost never hear about it. And Peter has this robust understanding that incorporates even this aspect of pride. It's in, verses, it's in verse 6. He says, humble yourself, and seven, humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all of your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Do you see how, do you see what Peter's doing here? He's uniting pride and anxiety. These are two things that we often think are at odds with one another. You can either be a proud person or an anxious person. But, but this opening command here in verse 6 says, humble yourself, Peter says. And then the question is, well, how do we do that? Verse 7 is the answer. Casting all of your anxieties on him because he cares for you. It's probably better translated cast, casting all of your cares on him because he cares for you. Those two words are actually coming from the same Greek root together. Cast all your cares on him for he cares for you, and we definitely wouldn't translate it the other way, cast all your anxieties on God because he's anxious for you. God is not anxious. He knows everything and sees everything, and he sees the, the future, and so he's not worried about how all this is going to end and, and, and play out, okay? So cast all your cares on God because he cares for you. Now, humble, now, now Peter is saying there, there must be a subtle version of pride that goes like this, keeping your cares to yourself. The things that concern you, that occupy your your anxious thoughts, keeping them to yourself is indicative that you think you can handle them all on your own. It's incredible pride. If you just think on them enough, if you just worry about them enough, if you just evaluate them from every angle, if you just go through this imaginary conversation with your boss or your friend one more time, if you just ask your friends what they think and give input, if you just journal and write a lot about it, you see all these things actually have an air of humility and sure they can be helpful in, in helping us cope with cares, 
But if you haven't asked God for help, that is, if you haven't cast it, or another word to translate that Greek word would be to throw, if you haven't thrown your cares up to God in prayer and conversation, you're prideful. You think you can do this all on your own. You haven't brought your cares to the carer, to the one who cares for you. You see, all of us are going to have a host of cares in this world. They're revealed and and heightened now more than ever uh, because we've never been in more uncertain times for most of us. We've never been in more uncertain times. And and there's never been more to worry about than right now. And, And the temptation that we all experience time and time again goes like this. I got this. I can handle my cares and we won't throw them up to God and we'll just try to solve these cares all on our own. These problems, difficulties, hardships, all on our own. But here's the thing. These cares, difficulties, burdens, hardships, they're all greater than us. They're all bigger than us. We actually can't solve our own cares on our own. In our pride, we think we can. But even with regards to food, drink, clothing, health, shelter, relationships, we were created to depend on God for those things. That's that's how we're wired. And and that's why when Jesus shows up on the scene uh, in his Sermon on the Mount, what could be his first sermon, he's like, hey guys, you guys need to depend on God for these cares. Isn't that interesting? And so if we're not regularly throwing up our our cares and our prayers to God, asking for his help, we not only revealed uh, the the, the pride in trusting ourselves to solve our problems, but it also means that we have a host of sinful coping mechanisms that we use to to, to fill the gap that, that God was meant to fill for us. Peter tells us this is where Satan prowls and lurks. You see, the Christian is the person who is not without the temptation to do it on their own. All of us have the temptation to do it on our own. I'm tempted with that all day, every day. The Christian just chooses to take their care and throw them up to God. All of them. That's that's what they decide to do. The Christian has found that God is the best coping mechanism out there for our cares because he is the one who actually has the power to meet them, who actually has the love for us to extend them to us, to protect us, that he actually is more concerned about our self-interest than we are is what we find. We were never designed and meant to care for ourselves. And and, and so the stress of doing this uh, makes us and forces us to cope in in some really sinful ways. I I don't need to list them out for you. You know where you go and what you do in intense times of stress and anxiety when you don't take your cares to God. See, do, do you see how all this is tied to pride? Tied to our confidence in our own abilities? And this is where Satan wants to devour us, Peter says. And and the the biblical witness really um, uh, alludes to Satan's strategy. This is how he works just throughout the whole Bible. Satan works in this world through our heart's sin. That's what he does. Ephesians 4 says, don't let the sun go down on your anger for that gives the devil a foothold in your life. You see, resentment and bitterness and anger give Satan an inroad to your life to sidetrack you off the mission of God and to make you useless. 
Paul writes to Timothy, who he has asked, he's tasked with appointing elders in different churches, and he says this, don't put a new Christian in a position of authority because he could be tempted by pride and fall into the snare of the devil. You see, we have, we have two tendencies that we have with Satan. I believe C.S. Lewis talks about these um, at the beginning of the screw tape lovers, uh, letters, I think, maybe in the introduction. Um, the first is to be overly superstitious with regards to Satan, to see him in and behind everything, uh, that every, every bad thing that happens is a result of, of his power in the world. Uh, but the, the second is to be substitious of Satan, uh, where, where the devil is not thought of to have much influence in our lives and, and, and Generally, the life of the Christian, he doesn't really have any power, can't really do anything. So, so we have superstition and substition, but they both, they both suffer from a crucial error, which is they downplay our own flesh and our own sin when it comes to Satan. The, the way to acknowledge the devil is to acknowledge our sin and how he uses it. The, the way to not be overly fearful about his abilities is to see that he operates through our sin. If, if you want to get rid of the devil, just get rid of his footholds in your life. That's how he operates. You, you can think of it like this. Think of a piano performance. A piano performance has a piano player and, and then the piano. And, and in this illustration, the, the, the devil is the piano player. We are the piano, and he's hoping to make a terrible song of evil, and, and he makes his music through the strings in the piano, right? That's what truly makes the music in this piano back here, that the strings are hit, okay? Through the strings of the piano, and, and those strings represent your pride and your sin. If you have a grudge, resentment, bitterness, Satan plays on those Strings. If you have an overinflated view of self, Satan plays on those strings. If you think you're the only one that can handle your cares in this world, Satan plays on those strings. When you lean into sinful coping mechanisms, Satan's playing a song with your sin. If you want Satan to be without power, just don't give him any strings to play on. If you have a grudge and keep it, realize that you're opening yourself up to Satan's power. If you are the piano, he's playing a song with your sin. Um, in the 1600s, there is an English theologian uh, named William Gurnall, who actually wrote one of the most complete works on spiritual warfare entitled The Christian in Complete Armor. It's a really famous work, really long work um, as well. Um, and he has this quote on this dynamic, which I think is really, uh, really astute and really helpful in unpacking how Satan works. He says this, he says, if men hear a noise at night, they cry, the devil, the devil, and they run for their life. But they carry the devil around in their very hearts all day. For if you have a proud spirit or if you have resentment or if you have anxiety, you are under his power. He is setting you in a precarious place. My friends, why don't you run from your pride crying, the devil, the devil? Why don't you run from your resentments and your grudges yelling, the devil, the devil? You see, he's saying that we should run from our sin in terror. Grinnell goes on to argue that the Christian life here is a continual wrestling with sin and Satan. That's very realistic. Likewise, Peter says, be sober-minded, be watchful, because our adversary, the devil, prowls 
In these times of suffering especially, he's wanting, he's waiting for us to fall into pride so that he can pounce and play a song. Now we're, we're, we're mixing metaphors here, but Peter's writing us to encourage us that we can do it. And, and, to, and to provide us encouragement, he's actually added some hope here. He actually zooms out. He wants to put our lives, he wants to put suffering, he wants to put this dance with the devil, you could call it, in perspective, okay? Um, because he wants to, to help us avoid uh, the pits of, of shame, of hopelessness, of despair in the midst of suffering, because that's where Satan creeps in. That, that's where Satan, or, or we could say that's where we fall away and Satan's waiting to, pouch, uh, to, to pounce. Okay, so he puts it like this, starting in verse nine. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. So, so Peter's first zoom out is to help us stop looking at ourselves in suffering. When you suffer, it's just only natural. You just want to look at yourselves and, and, and be preoccupied with that. And he's saying, we need to look at one another. He's saying, we're all in this together. And, and there's something incredibly comforting about this, isn't there? That's why all the news stations say, hey, guys, we're all in this. Yeah, this is very comforting here that we haven't been singled out to suffer and be tormented, that these sufferings are common to Christians everywhere, which means that it's common to the Christian walk. What, what about this is so comforting? Well, because it releases the Christian from shame. Often suffering with temptation, uh, sin, it's our tendency to turn inward and conclude there's something wrong with us, that I'm not a good Christian if, if this suffering is hard for me, if this suffering is producing struggling in my life, that, that if I was really a Christian, if I was really a good Christian, this would be a breeze right now. There must be something wrong with me. I must be broken. I must be useless I must be incapable of God's love. These are the avenues that shame takes us down. And Peter, by saying, no, zoom out, look up. All of us are suffering. We're all suffering right now. Don't fall into shame. It's experienced by Christians everywhere. We're all suffering in isolation and realizing that helps us know that God has not singled us out. That is not a consequence of, of us being weak in faith. It's just an outside suffering, okay? Now, then, then Peter zooms out again in verse 10. He says this, And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Okay, so he zooms out again. He says, okay, remember the God of all grace, Okay, uh, it's actually what he starts this sentence with in the Greek. Many translations flip it. He actually starts by reminding us of the, the God of all grace. And, and this is why we unpacked what God's grace in the gospel means earlier, because Peter isn't limiting it to what God's gracious actions of the past are. He's actually thinking about the present actions that God is doing in and through us even now, that when we see Christ suffering intensely, that's when he was actually operating in the most grace, when he is, is crying, oh, Father, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. That was at a time of terrible suffering on the cross. And so what Peter's is saying, hold on, God working his grace in you and through you is not mutually exclusive to suffer, from suffering. 
both those things happen at the same time in order to magnify his eternal glory in Christ Jesus is what he says here, which is amazing. They're not mutually exclusive. They work hand in hand because it's through suffering and hardship that we see God's gracious activities of, of restoration, of confirmation, of strengthening and establishing. That can happen if we're honest with our suffering, if we cast our cares to God. It's, that's how God's mission has always advanced in the world. Throughout history, the church doesn't advance when it executes a perfect church programs, but it exponentially advances when Christians suffer faithfully and realize that it's still an opportunity for God's grace to work in and through them both now and in the future. Okay, and then, then second, uh, well, I guess this is the third thing that, that Peter zooms out to tell us is, is to remind us that this is temporary. This is temporary. This is such a vital reminder in the midst of suffering, isn't it? Peter is helping us to avoid despair with this zooming out. You see, despair creeps in and whispers in our ear that our present sufferings will never end. Despair says this is going to last forever, so you might as well give up. But with this, Peter is really hearkening back to the beginning of the thesis of his letter, where he says the same thing, that for a short time, we will experience trials and sufferings. It's a short time. Our present suffering is temporary. And this is truly what differentiates the Christian from the rest of the world. Our life is now to be controlled by the thoughts of heaven and the world to come. That, that's the entire New Testament witness. You can find it, find it absolutely everywhere. Here in 1 Peter, Colossians 3, um, Philippians 4, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, the roll call of the faithful in Hebrews chapter 11. Do you know what, what it says of those people? This is, this is amazing. They were not looking for a city here the author of Hebrews says, but they were looking and searching and seeking for a city beyond that has foundations whose builder and maker is God. You see, that's, that's the secret to suffering well. The non-Christian does everything he can not to think of the world beyond ours. That's, that's the whole meaning for this, the seeking for pleasure and, and, and all of this, all these distractions. It's all just a great conspiracy to, to stop thinking about what comes after death? What comes after life? Especially to avoid that. There, there's nothing that the non-Christian hates more than to think about death and eternity. It makes, it's really uncomforting. But the Christian, on the other hand, is a person who thinks a great deal about these things, dwells upon them, and they actually become a great controlling principle and factor on their whole outlook in life. They tell us that this suffering will pass. That Satan's, is, Satan's looking for an opportunity to strike in the midst of this suffering, but we will serve God's purposes in a special way to let his grace flow through us. You see, when the church truly, humbly, faithfully suffers well by submitting to the authorities that play, that's what Peter's talking a lot about, that God has established, and by resisting their sin, by resisting Satan, it serves to bring God more glory than if there was no suffering to begin with. So that's what's at stake in our suffering, both now and for the rest of our lives. What's at stake in our suffering is the glory of God 
and our good? Are we going to suffer well? Are we going to cast our cares upon God? Are we going to humble ourselves enough to say that this is hard, we need help? Are we going to clothe ourselves with humility towards one another? This is how Peter closes his letter to challenge us, to encourage us, to let us know that it's going to be okay and that we can, we do have the resources to suffer well through the gospel of grace. Would Would you pray with me? Father, I ask right now that you would just be with us in our time of suffering, that you would show yourself and your grace in powerful ways among us, that you would work powerfully in and through us. I pray for all my friends who are are watching this uh, right now. God, I pray that your spirit would be extra present in their lives, that you would help all of us uh, confess whether we had leaned into a debtor's gospel in our life and and help us reorient to to seeing um, you as a God who's pouring out grace right now into us. And may that motivate us to to suffer well. And so um, we we thank you so much for being with us today. We know that you are good. Thank you for reminding us to look at one another, to, to ask for help for one another. Thank you for reminding us to look at you. And thank you for reminding us to look at eternity. I pray that you would uh, bring those reminders into our, our, our days and our weeks. I pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen.